of the Gospel according to St. John. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me? The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil, who goeth about to kill thee? Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and ye all marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers, and ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receive circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me, because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Now I am taking those verses together as my text this evening, because obviously they do constitute a statement in and of themselves. We've been working our way carefully and slowly through this chapter, and we have generally done so at the rate of one verse an evening, sometimes not even that. We've had to spend two or three evenings on certain verses. But here tonight, I take from verse 19 to verse 24, because, as I say, it has one big message, one great picture to put before us and into our minds. And uh, those who attend here regularly will see at once, of course, that in this statement our Lord is continuing uh, his examination and his exposure of these Jewish authorities uh, who had made their disparaging remarks concerning him in the temple. Now, it is very essential that we should be clear about the background and the context, otherwise we will not be able to understand some of these particular references. Let me therefore reconstruct the subject for you. Our Lord, as we are told in the fifth chapter of this Gospel according to St. John, had healed the men at the pool of Bethesda. And that really was the beginning of the trouble that arose as between him and the Pharisees and scribes and the doctors of the law. Here was a man who had been paralyzed in that way for so long, and yet our Lord, with a mere word, had been able to heal him. And the man had arisen, who had been impotent, and had taken up his pallet on which he had been lying and had walked away. Now, it was that that had caused the trouble, and for this reason, that our Lord had healed that man on a Sabbath day. And because he'd done that on the Sabbath, they were charging him with being a blasphemer and a lawbreaker. And their suggestion was that this claim of his to have come from God and to be God's representative was monstrously impossible, because he had healed a man on the Sabbath day. Very well, there's our background, as it were, our remote background. But the immediate background here is uh, some time later, when our Lord had gone up to Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, we are told, you remember in the 14th verse, about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And uh, we read the Jews marveled. Yes, but though they marveled, what they said was this. How knoweth this fellow letters, having never learned? That's sarcasm, that's dismissal of him. Who is this, they said? This fellow, this upstart. Who is he to be teaching? He's not a Pharisee. He's never had our training. What does he know? What's his academic standing? And thus they dismiss him. How knoweth this man, this fellow, letters having never learned. And then, you remember, our Lord begins to teach them. He looks at them. He analyzes their position. He exposes it to them. We've been considering that in detail. I needn't go over that. He shows that their whole approach is wrong. It's academic. The moral element is absent. 
And above all, they're moved and animated by nothing but pride and by conceit. They're out for their own glory. And that's why they don't understand him, because he is not out for his own glory, but for the glory of him who hath sent him. Now then, there is the position at which we have arrived. But here I say our Lord continues with his analysis and his exposure of the condition of these people. And what he does, of course, is to press it still further home. So far, he's been dealing with it in general. Now, he really does come right down and actually, of course, becomes personal. And we shall follow that out. Now, let me make this clear that we are dealing with all this and examining it because we surely can describe this in many ways as being our Lord's clearest and most specific analysis of unbelief that is to be found anywhere in the scriptures. That's what he's doing. Here he is, the Son of God, and he has worked the miracle, he's given the sign, and he's given previous signs. Here he is speaking, in a way that they have to admit and acknowledge is quite extraordinary, and they don't understand it. And yet they dismiss him. Now our Lord is concerned about these people, concerned about their condition. There will come a time later in his ministry, just before his death, when he'll pronounce his terrifying woes upon them. He hasn't come to that. But what he's doing here is he's opening their eyes to their position. He wants them to see it. And that is why I'm attempting to do this evening, as I've been attempting for a number of Sunday evenings already. There is nothing more terrifying, more appalling than that anyone should go out of this world in a state of unbelief. There is nothing I say worse than that. That is the end. That is a thing that determines a man's endless, eternal future. And an unbeliever has a future, an eternal future of woe. Very well then. What our Lord did there so long ago in the temple of Jerusalem by way of analysis of unbelief is the simple truth this evening. Oh, perhaps the terms and the categories have changed a little, the actual form of the opposition, but that doesn't matter what he's concerned with his principles. And these abide the same. Everything we've considered so far about these people, we have seen to be the simple truth about unbelievers tonight and what I'm going to say this evening is as applicable tonight as it was when our Lord spoke nearly 2,000 long years ago. My dear friend, let me say again, this isn't an academic consideration. This is no night. We are all tired and weary with the heat. I am particularly. I say I haven't the energy to do something theoretical. What am I doing? Well, I'm here, I say, because our eternal future depends upon our relationship to this blessed person. Belief in him leads to life and salvation. Unbelief leads to eternal misery. That's what we are considering. Very well. Now then, what has this particular paragraph got to tell us? It seems to me that uh, it divides itself up quite naturally into two main sections which I want to hold before you. First of all, let us look at this paragraph and observe what it tells us about our Lord, what it tells us about him. For it is most illuminating. It stands out here on the very surface. What does it tell us? Well, the first thing I notice is this. While we think that we are examining him, what is really happening is that we are being examined by him. Now look at the position here in the temple at Jerusalem. Here are these Jews, and remember, these are the doctors of the law, the Pharisees and scribes and others. You notice that we shall be dealing in a moment with a reference to the people. There is a difference between the Jews and the people. The people are the common, ordinary Jews. But the Jews, ah, here are the authorities, the religious experts. Well, there they are. 
in the temple, you see, and our Lord, halfway through the Feast of Tabernacles, stepped forward and he began to teach. And we've considered his amazing and astonishing teaching. But they, as self-appointed examiners, begin to investigate and to assess and to examine him. They, they, they're quite happy about this. There's no doubt at all. They are the authorities, and here is some fellow who's come along and who ventures to teach and to preach. They are sitting in judgment upon him, and they're examining him and investigating him. Yes, but don't you see what's happening? What is really happening is, of course, that he is examining them. The tables are turned. And as you read the entire section, you will see it. You can't fail to see it. They become silent and he goes on talking. And he's telling them things about himself and exposing them to themselves. You know, it's a dangerous thing, in a sense, to come anywhere near the Lord Jesus Christ. There are people who say, yes, I'm tremendously interested in Christianity and I like reading the Bible occasionally and I like reading books about and I listen, of course, to the wireless and the discussion. I, I find this tremendously interesting. Oh, my dear friend, let me warn you, be careful what you're doing. You won't have gone very far in your examination of him before you find that you are being examined. It's a dangerous thing to say anything about this person. What we really do when we talk about him, of course, is to expose ourselves and give ourselves away. Look how these men did it. They said, how oh, this fellow letters having never learned? And there, you see, they're telling us everything about themselves. They're revealing their blindness, their pride, their prejudice, their ignorance, their superficiality, and all the other things that I'm going to hold before you. They had no suspicion of that. Oh, no, no, they were expressing opinions about him. Yes, but the moment you begin to talk about this person, you're saying a tremendous lot about yourself. Now, I think that I have once or twice illustrated this point in this way. We cannot speak, in a sense, about any subject without saying a great deal about ourselves. Ah, well, we think we are not speaking about ourselves. We are speaking about something else. We say upon, about some great masterpiece, some great painting, you say, I see nothing at all in that. Well, of course, you're really telling us nothing about the painting, but you're saying a great deal about yourself, aren't you? You're showing your complete ignorance of art. Ah, but the man says, I wasn't talking about myself, but he was talking about himself. In making his pronouncement on that great picture... He is making a very significant statement about himself. And so it is with music and with literature. People today seem to see nothing in great classical music. Well, they're not telling us anything about that, but they're telling us a great deal about themselves and their depraved taste and their increasing return to the jungle for their music. You see, a man, by expressing an opinion as he thinks quite objectively, unconsciously is revealing the simple truth about himself and his own character and his own ability or lack of it or whatever it may be. Well, no, that was, that was what was happening to these people here. So I would warn you as we proceed to be very careful. Be careful what you say about this person. He himself said on one occasion, by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Any passing light word you may utter about him is recorded and will be produced in the day of judgment. So that our very approach to this person needs to be rather careful. Without realizing it, I say, we find that we are the subjects of the examination, as these Jews did in the Temple of Jerusalem so long ago. Let me hurry to a second thing. The second thing that stands out here quite clearly is this, that he knows us in a way that nobody else knows us. Where do you find that, says someone? Well, let me tell you. Here is our Lord addressing the Jews. They, he said, did not Moses give you the law? 
And yet none of you keepeth the law. Why go ye about to kill me? That's what he said to the Jews. But then the people answered and said, Thou hast a devil. Who goeth about to kill? What are you talking about, said the common people now. They said, well, well, what are you saying? What do you mean by saying to our leaders and teachers that they're going to kill you? Who's going about to kill you? Well, what are you talking? There's no evidence of this. There's no plot. There's, they haven't come here with spears and daggers. You, you, you must be mad, thou hast a devil. Who goeth about to kill And yet our Lord had said to these same Jews, Why go ye about to kill me? Who was right? Well, those of you who know your four Gospels know the answer. He was perfectly and completely right. The common people didn't know that. He knew it. The common people looked up to these Jews, these teachers, these wonderful men, and they did them reverence, and they bowed to them as they were passing along to the synagogue to give their great expositions and disquisitions. The people revered them. Our Lord knew that there was murder in their hearts. And they finally did put him to death. He knew it, but the people didn't know it. In other words, you see, he knew these Jews in a way that nobody else knew them. Indeed, we are told this many times in this gospel according to St. John. Do you remember the end of the second chapter? You read something like this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of men for he knew what was in men. Here is one, I say, who knows us in a way that nobody else knows us. We have all got skeletons in the cupboard. And not one of us is what we appear to be. We pay attention to the externals, to the surface. And people accept us at our own valuation, never more so than today. And the world doesn't know us. There are things that are hidden and concealed that the world knows nothing about. As this enmity and hatred in the heart of these Jews was there, but nobody could see it, he saw it. When you come anywhere near to this Son of God, remember, my friend, that he knows all about you. There is nothing that he doesn't know. It is all before him. That's here on the very surface. And that brings me to my third point about him, which is this. He, you see, knows the heart. And he alone knows the heart. It's here in two of our verses this evening. You see, he knows that in the heart of these Jewish authorities, there is this murder. This murderous intent, this hatred, this animosity. Of course, they don't speak like that. They speak with sarcasm. And the average man only heard the sarcasm. But he knows that in the heart, lurking there, waiting to be developed, is this awful, foul, cankerous thing that eventually took him to the cross and there killed him. But it's also in verse 24. He says, judge not according to the appearance. He doesn't judge according to the appearance. They do. And that's the cause of their trouble. But he says, don't do that. Get down to the depths. Judge as I judge. See the hidden, unrevealed things. There it is. He ever sees the heart. And this again is something that is absolutely central and primary with regard to this whole question of coming into contact with him, coming anywhere near him and considering him. My dear friend, you're dealing with someone here who knows all about you, everything, all the secret, hidden recesses of your innermost being. They're all before him. He knows everything, our thoughts, our desires, our imaginations. But, ah, oh, says the man, you can't point a finger at me. I haven't done this or that or the other. Wait a moment, says Christ. I know your thoughts. Do you remember what we are told in the very first chapter of this book? 
this Gospel of John. You remember a man whose name was Nathaniel? He came, he was brought, you remember, to our Lord. And our Lord said a thing to him that amazed him and astonished him. He said, I saw thee when thou wast under the fig tree. What's he referring to? Well, he's referring to his secret meditations, to the innermost desires of his soul, something that nobody else could see, but our Lord had seen the meaning all about this man. He says, this is an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. He knew the man's heart. He can pronounce upon the innermost recesses, thoughts, desires, imaginations, everything. Indeed, let me give you this great word from the epistle to the Hebrews. All things are naked and opened unto him, unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The word of God is quick and powerful, dividing even to the separating of the soul and spirit and of the very joints and marrow. It's like a too sharp, a sharp two-edged sword. It's he himself, these blazing eyes of the Son of God that read us in the very depths. Now then, all that comes out here, you see, these Jews didn't realize that. They just stand in a group and judge him as they think. In the meantime, he's judging them, and he's now speaking, and he's revealing it, and he's exposing it and opening it. He says, Moses has given you the law, but not one of you keeps the law. Why are you setting about to murder me? And at once they knew that he knew all about them and their secret desires and the innermost part of their being. How little did the Jews realize that? How little do men and women realize that today? You know, if people only realized this more truly, there'd be less glib talk about Christianity. Men wouldn't approach it in such a self-confident manner and dismiss it so lightly. No, no, if they but realize that while they're talking, they're revealing themselves and exposing themselves, and that he, with the x-ray of his eye, is upon them and reading them in the very depths. And if you would like to know this evening whether you've any ever had any dealings with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I can tell you very quickly and very easily as to how you can know it for certain. When a man truly comes face to face with him, he realizes that this is true. And he becomes humble. And he becomes silent. He becomes reverent. He becomes careful. The arrogance of confidence disappears the moment a man rarely comes face to face with him. Have you come to that, my friend? Or are you still fondly imagining that you're in the position of the critic, one of the critics, the people who look on objectively with their great learning and knowledge, and they're examining him, Christ, the Son of God, is on the table. He's being examined and assessed. Is that your position? I would put it like this again if you're still standing on your feet as you're considering him. You've never seen him. You don't know him. Because if you ever meet those eyes, the innermost part of your being is read like an open book and you know it. And all the foul and ugly and sinful things that are in you, not only your acts, but your thoughts and desires and imaginations, he sees them all. He knows the whole total truth about us. And we are ashamed, and we are humbled in his presence. That's what I see about him in this little paragraph. The one that they thought they were examining was examining them. Which is your position? Are you looking down or are you looking up? It's one or the other. And if you've ever seen him, I say, you're looking up at him. He's above and you are down. And until we come to this point, everything else is in vain. If any man, says the apostle to the Corinthians, willeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be made wise. 
The first thing that happens to a man who becomes a Christian is that he begins to realize what he is and what, who he is and how little he knows and that he's under this searching glance of the Son of God and that all about him is known. That's what I see about him. But come, let us look at the second matter, the second great section of this little paragraph. Here we are going to deal with what he tells us about unbelief. The paragraph reveals truth about him, but then he, in explicit words, proceeds with his analysis of unbelief and its ways. What does he tell us? What do we find? Well, I venture to say again that this is the most devastating exposure and analysis of unbelief that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Listen. He starts by saying that unbelief is always hypocritical and dishonest. That's a strong statement, isn't it? But I'm going to substantiate it. Unbelief is always hypocritical and dishonest. Ah, oh, but says somebody, I thought it was you religious people who are the hypocrites. Not at all, says Christ. It's the man who's not a Christian who's the hypocrite. Look at these Jews. Here you are, he says. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keepeth the law. You're hypocrites. You spend your time, he said, in effect, in talking about the law. It's the great interest of your life. You're always arguing about it, debating together about it. You say, which is the first and the chiefest commandment of the law? There are 16, 613 of them. Now, the question is, which is the greater? You live for the law. The law, you say, is everything. And your authority is on the law. It's the one thing of which you're proud as Jews. You say, those Gentiles, they've never been given the law. They're the lesser breed without the law, the dogs. But we were given the law by Moses. We are God's people. That's what you say, said our Lord. But not one of you keepeth the law. You're dishonest. You're utterly hypocritical in your whole attitude towards the law. Your interest, he said, in the law is something purely theoretical. And you don't realize that the law has been given in order that it might be practiced and put into action? There is no value in boasting of the fact that you have the law if you don't keep the law. There is no value, there is no excellence in saying that you're familiar with its terms, its clauses and its subsections if you don't honor it if you are constantly breaking it. I mustn't stay with this tonight if you want the perfect exposition of this aspect of the matter. When you go home tonight, read the Apostle Paul in the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 2, the second half, beginning about verse 17, and go right to the end. Thou art a Jew, he says, and burstest thyself in the law. And then he brings out his massive artillery of criticism and of logic. It doesn't help you, he says, that you're a Jew and that the law was given to you and that you know about it. Have you kept it? Thou that says the man shall not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that says the man shall not kill, dost thou kill? Thou that says the man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? This is sheer hypocrisy. Talking about these things, yes, but in an entirely theoretical manner. And oh, isn't this the trouble with the vast majority of people who are not Christians today? They talk about God. They argue about Christ. They give their expressions about religion and all their opinions. But the question is this. What are they doing about it all? Is God someone to be argued about? Is God some proposition in philosophy? Is God just some concept, some abstract? Is God someone for you and myself to indulge in intellectual gymnastics concerning him? Is that it? And all the clever talk that goes on about morality and the need of this and that in the state and so on, I'm asking this simple question. Are we doing anything but talking about it all? Have you a real desire for God in your heart? 
Do you really want to be pure and clean and chaste and wholesome and moral and upright? I say that to talk about God and religion and morality and the problems of the hour, unless we are honest with ourselves and concerned to be living a life that is worthy of the name, it's sure hypocrisy and cant. It's dishonest. He charged these Jews with that and his charge was justified. And I charge anybody in this congregation who is not a Christian this evening. Now tell me, have you really sought God and to know him? Have you really sought to understand this Christ? I'm not interested in your talk. Are you genuine, I'm asking? Are you honest? Are you really trying to practice even what you claim to believe? Or is it all remote and theoretical and detached? Are you in the position of the spectator, the judge, the looker-on? That's the fatal thing. And it's always, I say, a sign of hypocrisy and dishonesty. But let me hurry to the second thing, which is this. He says also that uh, this unbelief always misses the real spirit of the matter, the real big thing. Where's that? Well, let me show you. That was the whole trouble with the Pharisees, you see. The Pharisees had reduced the law of God to a matter of the letter. These men were doing it. Murder, they were never going to commit murder. You know, none of these ever took a club and beat the Lord Jesus Christ on, the, on his head. No, no, of course they'd never committed murder. They arranged somebody else should do it, but then that meant they were all right, you see. They hadn't actually done it. They'd kept the letter. Nobody could come and say, I saw you hitting him. I saw you striking him. Oh, they said, we've done nothing. We are no murderers. That was their whole trouble, wasn't it? You remember the Sermon on the Mount? Read again Matthew chapter 5. Begin to read at verse 17 and go in to the end of the chapter. And that's what you'll find. He takes it up six times. You have heard that it was said by them of old time. But I say unto you, and what's he saying? Well, what he's saying is this. That what matters with regard to the law is not the letter but the spirit. You can prove, you say, that you've never murdered a man. Have you ever said about your brother, thou fool? If you have, says Christ, you're guilty of murder in your heart. You say, I've never committed adultery. All right, says Christ. Have you ever looked upon a woman to lust? Has the sight of that woman aroused lust in you? And have you played with it? If so, you've committed adultery with her in, a, in your heart. It isn't the letter that matters. It's the spirit. You see, these people had never realized that. They'd never realized that the whole essence of the law is positive. They thought it was negative. Don't do this, don't do that. And as long as they've never done it in actual fact, literally, they said, we're guiltless. We've never done this thing. My dear men, said our Lord, it's the spirit that matters. And the law is positive. And the essence of the law is love. What is the law given by Moses? It is this, is Christ. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. That is the first. And the second is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And you haven't kept the law until you're doing that. These men were not keeping the law because they'd never understood its spiritual principle. And then the other thing is this. Here they are, you see, looking at him and they're so bogged down in irrelevant details that they miss the big thing. What they saw was not that he'd healed the man whom nobody else could heal. What they saw was that he'd done it on the Sabbath. And that blinded them to the glory of the act. And do you notice how he proves their utter inconsistency? Now look here, my friends, if you're interested in logic, listen to this. This is brilliant logic and argumentation by the Son of God. He says, Moses therefore gave unto you a circumcision. Wait a minute. Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and you all marvel. Ah, oh, you say, this is a terrible thing. He's healed a man on the Sabbath. I have done one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision. 
Then a very great thrust here, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. He said, don't worship Moses as you're tending to do. Circumcision is even anterior to Moses. It was given to Abram 430 years before. However, he says, we'll pass that by. That was an interjection and aside, as it were. Then he goes on, and he said, Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, and you on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. What he means is this. A little child is born, and the law says that the child, the male child, must be circumcised on the eighth day. But what if the eighth day happens to be a Sunday? For the law says you shall do no work on a Sunday. Ah, he says, you very rightly have always said this, that uh, that doesn't come under the category of work, because it is something that is absolutely essential, and marks him as one of the chosen covenanted people. We must circumcise it, even though it be a Sunday. You're perfectly right. You on the Sabbath day circumcise the man. You want to make him ceremonially clean. You want to put him right with God. So you rightly circumcise him, though it is the Sabbath. Now listen. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses be not broken, are you angry at me because I have made a man every whittle on the Sabbath day? You yourself say, though the law of Moses says you shall do no work on a Sabbath, you say, yes, this man must be cleansed locally in that one respect, though it is the Sabbath. It's right. And here am I, he says, I made a man not only whole in part, but every whittle. And you're angry at me. Can't you see, he says to them in effect, that you are so blinded by the letter that you can't see the spirit? You're even inconsistent with yourselves and your own position? You are so tied down by your prejudices and your preconceived notions that you're arguing against yourselves and are utterly ridiculous? So bogged down, I say, by details that they don't see the big principle, the great fact, the spirit of it all. And isn't that the trouble with all who do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ still? They're arguing about their little points. They don't understand this or that. And he is there and they don't see him with their little details and minutiae, with their carping little criticisms. They're missing him. The Sabbath. And not seeing the Lord of the Sabbath. Isn't it tragic? Well, that brings me to the third and the last thing that he says in this devastating analysis about unbelief. It's this. It is, he says, always utterly superficial. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. What's the matter with you? Well, he says, it's this. You're judging by the appearance. You're hasty. You're hurried. You jump to conclusions. That's what he means by judging by the appearance. He says you just look on the surface and you commit yourselves and you judge. Oh, he says, why don't you take time? Why don't you look at all the evidence? Why don't you seek the whole of the facts? And why don't you weigh it all and assess it all and then try and discover an adequate explanation? Ah, you superficial men, he says. You see just one or two things and you give your judgment. Look at the whole, look at everything, take all the facts into consideration. Judge righteous judgment. How obvious this was in the case of these Jews. Here they are in the temple at Jerusalem. They're looking at him. And what do they see? Well, what they see is a carpenter from Nazareth. What they see is a man who hasn't been trained as a Pharisee. He is not a doctor of the law. 
What they see is a man who has healed another on the Sabbath day. And therefore they decide that he's a fellow, a blasphemer, someone who is to be dismissed and utterly condemned. And they turn upon him with sarcasm and scorn and plot his very death. Can you imagine anything more superficial than that? Just because of his outward circumstances and position, because he came from Nazareth, because he was born in a stable, because he'd worked with his hands, because he'd never been to the schools. Who can he be? What can he be? Ridiculous. Then he heals on the Sabbath, obviously. Knows nothing about the law. Blasphemer. Offending against God's law. Ignoramus. Who is this fellow? And so they dismiss him. Oh, the superficiality of it all. But isn't that the great characteristic of unbelief still? Go around and try a simple experiment. Go around with a pad and a pencil. And stop people at random. Do a kind of investigation such as the BBC does. And just ask people, why are you not a Christian? Why don't you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know the answers? You'll get it. It'll be something like this. But there are still wars. We've had two world wars in this present century. And they're building hydrogen bombs and preparing for another war. I don't believe in Christianity. It's been going now for nearly 2,000 years. And if there were anything in it, that wouldn't be the position still. I've given up being interested in it. Isn't that it? But it isn't even as intelligent as that very often. Christianity, says the man. Look at the people who are Christian. And the whole thing is dismissed. Christianity, says another. Didn't you see the newspaper the other day? A man who was once a Sunday school teacher has been guilty of a crime. So much for your Christianity. Christianity, says another, of course, I believed it when I was a child. I was made to go to Sunday school. And I believed it then, but of course I now think for myself. And of course I know now about science. Christianity, nothing in it. Play it out. And so, you see, they feel that they can dismiss it so glibly and easily with their cliches, exactly as these Jews did in the temple of Jerusalem nearly 2,000 long years ago. Here stands before them the Son of God. He's literally healed a man, and they know it's a fact. But they don't see that. They see these little details. Can't be dismissing. Oh, the unutterable, tragic superficiality of the unbeliever. My dear friend, if that's your position, listen to the appeal that is made to you by the Son of God himself this minute. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Wait a moment before you give your decision. Don't make a hasty decision. Wait a moment. Look at the facts. Look at all the facts. Consider them. Consider them honestly. Be righteous in your judgment. Make sure that your conclusion really does deal with the whole situation. In other words, his argument is this. If I am really a blasphemer and a lawbreaker, how did I succeed in healing that man? How did I succeed in turning the, the water into wine in Cana of Galilee? How did I succeed in working all those miracles in Jerusalem that so impressed even your own teacher Nicodemus? How did I do it? Just now I was teaching and you marveled at my knowledge because I'm an artisan and because I've never been trained. Can you explain that? Can I really be dismissed? That's what he's saying. Judge not according to the appearance. Face all the facts, consider them all, and arrive at a conclusion that will explain them, that will take them all in and give a satisfactory explanation concerning judge righteous judgment. And my dear friend, that is my appeal to you this evening. 
You say that there's nothing in Christianity and that's why you don't believe in it or that's why you've given it up. In the name of God, I beseech you, as you contemplate your own eternal and everlasting future, face him. Look at him again. Look at this blessed person. Look at that astonishing babe in that manger in Bethlehem. Look at him. The one who attracted the wise men from the east, led to him by a star in the heavens. Who is he? Look at that boy at twelve years of age in the temple, confounding and confuting the doctors of the law. Look at him, I say. Can you explain him? Look at that young man at the age of 30 setting out in his ministry. Look at his person. Listen to his words. Always marveling, causing people to marvel and to be astonished. How, I ask the question of the Jews in a different way, how has he arrived at his learning and knowledge? Where has he achieved this proficiency in his understanding of the law and of the prophets? Where has he got it from? How do you explain it? Look at his works. Look what he did to that man at the pool of Bethesda. Look at all his works. But finally, look at him. Dying on a cross on Calvary's hill, an apparent failure in utter weakness. He who had raised the dead and given sight to the blind could command the elements and storm the raging waves of the sea. He's dying in utter weakness. Who is he? What is he? They bury him and put him in a grave. But look into the grave on the morning of the third day. It's empty. He's risen. He appears. The whole situation is transformed. Go on to the day of Pentecost. See the transformation in those apostles. Look at the beginning of the Christian church. See her growth, her spread, her development, her turning of the world upside down. See her becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire in three centuries. Read the running story. Can you dismiss it all? Then I say go back and read your Old Testament. And see how there all these things were prophesied concerning him. Hundreds of years before it came to pass, the prophet had said it was going to come. It was said that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. That he'd ride into Jerusalem on the foal of an ass. And a thousand and one other details, they're all prophesied. He fulfills them all. Can you explain all that away? Look what he claims for himself, his power to forgive sin. His power to release from the bondage of sin and Satan. His ability to give life anew. Look at it happening in the Gospels. Look at it happening in the book of Acts of the Apostles. What happened to Saul of Tarsus? What happened to all the others? Follow it down the running centuries. What was it that turned the great Augustine from being a licentious philosopher, an immoral genius, into one of the greatest saints in the Christian church? What did it? The story of the Christian church is the greatest story in the annals of human activity. Read the lives of the saints. How do you explain them? Can you dismiss it all? What's it mean? I say take all this into consideration. And then go on and do this. Look at what life becomes when men and women don't believe in him. Look at your modern world. Look at the absence of love and tenderness and sympathy and compassion. Look at the greed and the selfishness and the envy and the vice 
and the robbery and the debauchery of life. Look at it all. There's life without him. But then when he comes in, that is changed and individuals are changed and reformed and renewed and are turned, I say, into saints. Can you dismiss all that? And then consider this fact. This person prophesied that the world would be as it is today. Nobody else has done that. Man, the philosophers have always prophesied that the world was going to get better and better and better and better until at last it arrived at perfection. He said no. He said that there will be wars and rumors of wars at the very end. As it was, he says, in the days of Noah, even so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. As it was in the days of Sodom, even so it shall be. He has prophesied the modern world, and the modern world is proving the truth of his word. Have you considered that? And then consider what he says about the ultimate end of all. The final conflagration and the judgment of the world. Have you considered it all? In the name of God and as you value your immortal soul, let me plead with you, judge not according to the appearance. You cannot dismiss Christ and the saints and the history of the church and the Bible and its prophecies. You can't dismiss it all with a wave of the hand. The facts are too big. There is only one explanation that fits the facts. There is only one righteous judgment. It is this, this is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. It's the only explanation that takes in all the facts. He's alone, he's unique, he comes from God. He's not only man, he's God-man. He is, I say. The Son of God incarnate. The Word made flesh. He is the Savior of the world. The only Savior. Fall at his feet. Look up into his face. And if there are things about him which you don't understand, Instead of dismissing him as these foolish men did, ask him to give an explanation. He's patient. He's meek. He's lowly. He says, come, learn of me. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Realizing that he knows all about you and the depths of your heart and your being, seeing your own miserable failure to manage even your own life, Fall down before him. Learn of him. Believe in him. Give yourself to him. And you will find that he is the savior of your soul. Oh, judge not according to the appearance. Give up being superficial. Judge. Righteous judgment. Amen.